Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Ray Livingston may be a name that you're familiar with. If you're a big fan of Alone, Ray was on Alone Season 6. He's also been on a couple of follow-up TV shows, uh, The Call of the Wild, I think a show called Mud Boots and Beards. Ray, I apologize if I messed that up. But Ray, as you'll find out very, very quickly in the beginning of this podcast and to the title of this podcast, is an African-American who has dreadlocks that speaks very articulately about the deep spirituality that he feels when he is in the woods, especially when he's in the woods hunting. As you listen to this podcast, you're going to understand what I'm about to say, that Ray just has this special something about him, the way that he speaks, the way that he just, you can feel his exuberance of life come through the podcast. Love the conversation. Can't wait for you to hear it. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. <laughs> so, we were obviously introduced, we've never met each other, we've never actually spoken like two words to one another, and... Uh, I always like to start podcasts because people think that like, oh, you know the person, Robbie, you know, you've had this deep interaction, deep connection with these people. And 
no, I, I'm having a conversation with them the first time they're having a conversation with me. And that's what I love about this, is that it's almost just like the soul-opening, heart-opening, two people who love this thing on an equal level. Actually, I will take that back. I think you love this thing more than I do, Ray. <laughs> well, what do you think? I, you know, I try not to weigh things like that. Like, our appreciation for them may be a little different. But doesn't mean one is greater or or less. We just have different roles and different paths in this world. <laughs> Ray, uh, I'm going to introduce you quick. I'm going to introduce you early on this podcast because typically I don't ever. I forget to introduce people because we just like I just said. I just start rolling and we start rolling and and whatnot. Uh, but I think a little bit of context to who you are is going to be you know really important. So Ray Livingston, number one. Firstly, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. And uh, number two, give us a little bit of introduction to, to who you are and all the places you have been featured. Let me say that. <laughs> well, uh, I tend to, I don't know, I, I guess I try to be humble. You know, I, 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 I say that I am just a half feral Negro from the middle of nowhere. <laughs> half feral Negro from the middle of nowhere. That is going to be the title of this podcast. Done. It's done. That is the title <laughs> of the podcast. I'm sorry. That's brilliant. That's all. That's me. You know, I'm just, I'm just me, and I'm just a person that's living my best life and trying to be the best person I can be. Um, and you know, follow my passions. You know, and that's led me to being on some television shows. And so uh, I was on the uh, season six of the Alone t television show on History Channel on a show on Nat Geo called uh, Called to the Wild. It was a, another wilderness survival genre show, uh, but with your dog. So it was pretty cool. Cool. Um, Donnie Dust and I were co-stars on USA Network's Mud, Sweat, and Beards, and unfortunately we did not get a, uh, a second season uh, of that show. So the episodes that, that people got were what they get. But right now I'm actually working on another project for a well-known show um on the history channel that is outside of the wilderness survival genre more of the um the mountain man type genre <laughs> and so uh so and that's really and naturally you can't speak much about that right i can't now. speak much about that but that's really my my life and path you know i i while i enjoy doing the bushcrafting and primitive skills stuff uh you know, the most efficient way to survival is using the stuff that's available. So I do like mm. my chainsaws and my rifles and, and my blowtorch and, and all that other stuff. It's definitely comforting to, to know that I've got those primitive skills to fall back on. But, you know, I'm all about, uh, I like the stuff. <laughs> and so, on Ray, this where, show, where, I where are you, where are you right now? Like, where's and home? I'm, I'm at my home. It's in Kettle Falls, Washington. I'm about 20 miles from the uh, Washington-Canadian border and about 40 miles from the Idaho border. So in the northeast corner of the state. And it is gorgeous up here. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. Give me a little bit of insight into um, Alone. Because I've, I've, I, 
I'll be honest, I haven't watched a lot of it. Um, your season, what, where were you, you know, what, what is, is it, le- maybe I need to say this, is it legit? Oh, Alone? Yes, it is yeah. 100% legit. The Alone, first of all, it is legit. It is what it purports to be. Um, they take 10 contestants and they drop them off at 10 separate locations uh, in some remote area, generally going into winter. Um, and it's like late fall going into winter. Um, Where did you get dropped off? I was in the Northwest Territories of Canada on the um, east arm of the Great Slave Lake uh, in Season 6. I think Season 6 and Season 7 were in that location. Um, okay. It's remote. Like, you you can't drive to it. You can't drive to that yeah, area. Yeah. You either have to take a, a boat or a plane, and you're landing on a gravel runway <laughs> in a plane. Like, it's, it's out there. And then you're there for 60 days? You're there for as long, the, the winner of the series is the person that stays the longest. And so you have the ability to tap out at any point on your adventure. Um, and so and you're self-filming that, this, right? And, it, and it's self-filmed. So you get your 10 survival items, and that doesn't include your clothing, but, you know, 10 fairly primitive survival items. I think the most technologically advanced thing that you can bring is like a ferro rod. Uh, or yeah. technically, maybe some of the some of your uh, your primitive style bows, but uh, other than that, you can choose your ten items off of their list. So you can't really take anything that you want. They have a list, but you know, if you're taking a bow and arrow, for instance, you can choose any make of of a bow and arrow you want, or your ferro rod, or whatever, whatever. But each item is individually approved. Uh, and that includes your clothing items. And the clothing items aren't part of your 10, but they have a list. So you can like take two pairs of outdoor pants, one pair, one heavy winter jacket, one light jacket, you know, those type of things. And then, uh, and then they drop you off and pretty much you're, you're um, at the mercy of the environment and your skills to try to survive there. Um, and they do check on you. You have, uh, we do, you do, they do give you a satellite phone and what they call a yellow brick locator, which is the kind of, kind of, if you need to get out an emergency, you just hit and hold the button. But other than that, um, you're on your own and you've got, and the self-filming aspect of it is, is the thing that makes it the most difficult, you know? Sure, sure. Like survival in and of itself is difficult. But times that by three, as far as your energy expenditure doing the filming, because if I want to climb a hill, I've got to identify the hill that I want to climb, climb up, place cameras, climb back down, climb up for the cameras, climb back down, pick up the cameras, and then do that consecutively any time that I'm doing anything. And they want you to have at least one camera rolling pretty much all times. And so you're, mm-hmm. you're constantly doing that, carrying camera gear enough that you you know, can go do what you need to do without having to go back to the shelter for batteries every time. So it's, right, it's right, tough. Right. How long did you last, Ray? I went 19 days. Um, and uh, I was, you know, I was, I left and I got a little bit of flack for it, but most people seem to understand that. But I, at 19 days, I hadn't really seen anything that would sustain me. And so okay. it was squirrels were the biggest land animal I saw. Fishing wasn't going great. And uh, 
and even after getting a lot of a little bit of snow where I could look for tracks or, or whatnot, I really wasn't seeing signs of anything uh, that yeah. was going to su- be able to sustain me for the duration of the challenge. And you know, I I'd been in contact with some people that were previous participants, and I know that a lot of the people that had uh, um, been removed for low weight on the show actually have long-standing health issues. And, uh, you know, as much as I wanted to stay longer, it wasn't worth it to me to, to risk having those health issues at 60 days. If you run out of food, I push it at 19 days and you're not finding enough food to sustain yourself. I just, you know, it was, it was a good choice. You know, I, I feel good about my choice and I just felt that, uh, the universe and mother nature had shown me what I needed to see there. So hundred percent, hundred percent. Ray, did you grow up? In this, like, love of the outdoors, love of just, like, living off the land? Is that how you grew up? Well, I grew up in, I brew, I was born in Portland, Oregon. So, inner city Portland. And uh, okay. dad, bless his soul, had a terrible yeah. accident. And he ended up being an amputee. And ended up getting a pretty sizable settlement from that. And the first thing he did was to get us out of the city. Uh, and that was like in the late 80s when, you know, the gang stuff was starting to really become uh, prevalent yeah. over there. And he moved us out to the east side of Gresham, Oregon, in the shadow of Mount Hood, closer to Sandy, Oregon, really, which, you know, there's no sidewalk, no streetlights, more cows than people out there. And uh, my dad and I fished a lot, but it was when I met my neighbor and still best friend, uh, Jim Calcano. That um, you know, Jim was kind of the uh, the the oops child, and so yeah. all of his siblings were much older, and most of his cousins were much older, and so his family was very involved with hunting, and uh, and they started taking me with them to uh, to be company for Jim was as a buddy with them, and so I borrowed Jim's. He had a left-handed compound bow, probably no name, little wheels on it, and. Um, I learned to shoot that proficiently right-handed and ended up harvesting my first elk on my first hunting season with that, with that little left-handed bow, and I've been hooked ever since. <laughs> How old are you in this when this is all going down? I'm 14 when I harvested my first elk. Okay. So you didn't really... Did you have... When your father moved you out of the city, did you have any perceptions, misperceptions about like where you were going and... He's you a know, farm folk, and they, you know, you know, bunch of rednecks that hunt and fish, no. and we just don't do that kind of stuff. No, even in the city, you know, I was always the kid that was like making bows and arrows and like oh, making okay, crossbows, okay. and I always it was like in my nature. I, I could, I can't explain it. I had nobody that really, that really was my inspiration for it. It just came naturally to me as a desire to do. And so when I got into hunting, it was, I think, sixth grade outdoor school and in in the state of oregon in sixth grade uh, all the kids go to an outdoor school so it's like four or five days they go to this little camp and and you get to do different yeah. activities and find frogs and and uh and i shot my first bow real bow there and i just loved it and yeah. uh and i remember i probably cried for about three days and when I came home and I was repeating the names of all my cabin mates, so I would never forget them. And, but it, it really had a profound, like, like I felt home. I felt at peace where, you know, my mom was kind of like, 
well, didn't you miss us? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and she was like, did you miss us? She was kind of a little bird about, about that, but it was just, for me, that felt like home. That felt like mm. where I belonged to, to be. And uh, ever since then, I was, I really had a close connection with, and with nature and a love for nature. And you know, when I'm going through hardships in life, I still, I'll go out and walk and just sit in, in nature and look around and try to find relevant examples in, in, in nature that help me solve my own problems in the mundane world. And I'm rarely not showing something that makes things make sense to me. How, it, it, it's a very astute observation that a lot of people, and maybe it's not even an argument, it's not very often that we use that as an argument to justify or to... Um, to explain why we hunt. Because I think maybe a lot of people would argue at that point, and maybe you can help me, and maybe you have a better answer than I would have, but a lot of people would say, well, you can do that without hunting. Can you? You can. You can. I mean, and, and the path of the hunter, you, you look at the, the makeup of any primal tribe. There's, there's the hunters, there's the gatherers, there's... You know, people that have different jobs. You know, Ray, I've been accused of being a gatherer when it comes to black bear hunting. Okay, <laughs> just so that you know, I cannot, I can't, I cannot harvest a black bear to save my life. So uh -huh. I've been accused of being a berry picker, actually, a berry picker, not a gatherer. Well, well I'll, in in your defense, I probably eat more berries when I'm out hunting than I do actually harvest animals. <laughs> <laughs> I do roam through the forest, snacking on whatever I find. But, yeah, you've got that makeup, and everybody has their own path, you know, and that's one of the things that, that helped me find peace in, with myself and in, in life, is that understanding that my path is not exactly the same as your path. You know, I look at things like, like, we're all part, we're all individual threads of a huge, beautiful tapestry in the universe. Each of the threads, while they contribute to the greater good or to the, to the beauty of the tapestry, every one of them has a little bit different path through the tapestry. And my path is not going to be exactly the same as, as anybody else's. And so I don't try to make it that way. Um, so my, I was naturally, I, I felt the hunter. It was something that was in my blood. Um, and, you know, historically speaking, you know, you look at you know, the 300,000 years that mankind has existed on this world in this form it's only been the last little smidgen that we yeah, aren't yeah. able to get all of our food from hunting and gathering so when you look at it culturally if you exist today it's because your ancestors knew how to hunt and knew how to gather and and they and they did both um but it's an important part of our our history and and where we came from for every her every culture, er every heritage, if you're here today, it's because your your ancestors had a strong and healthy ability to hunt. And uh, in honoring ourselves and where we came from, I think it's important to to recognize and, and honor that aspect of us as well. Right. Do you think that there's a difference in the sort of human psyche between when you are in the woods, moving through the woods, as you've just described, when you're hunting versus when you're hiking? 
I th- yeah, yeah, I think they're definitely there is a it's a it's a for me as a hunter already, it's subtle. For somebody that's not a hunter is going to be it would be probably more profound, especially when they first begin their hunting journey. You know, it kind of changes everything. You know, when you're out hiking, you tend to be looking at looking for beauty, and we do that well when we're hunting as well. But we're also in pursuit and when you see the signs that you're looking for um for animal activity you know then you tend to get hyper focused because that's what hunting requires um however at the same time you know while while hiking you know you you're, you're looking at the greater beauty and as a hunter you're looking more specifically for the, for the stuff regarding animals and animal activity but I also make sure that I take time to step back. And I think my largest, the largest animals that I've harvested for elk and deer have come when I decided to stop hunting, to take some time and to just sit back and enjoy the beauty of the place that I was in and appreciate the landscapes and the animals and everything for what it is. And literally with those two animals, they literally stepped out when I was at the height of my feeling joyful and joyous and just feeling warm about where I was at. It was like once I took the time to appreciate where I was at in nature and stop trying to overcome nature, mm-hmm. nature provide. And I had mm-hmm. that experience in, on a couple of times. It wasn't shown on film, but in a couple of times during live filming on Mud, Sweat, and Beards, there was a situation where I was looking for um, frogs for for uh catfish bait and uh and i'm looking and i'm looking and i'm looking and i'm in the swamps of louisiana there should be frogs everywhere and after 20 minutes and not finding them i just had a little epiphany like okay i stopped and i took a minute to thank the swamp and let us know let the swamp know that we're not here to over harvest we're here to highlight the beauty of the swamp and and show people you know the abundance that's there and then I took about three more steps, and I'm surrounded by frogs. That and that <laughs> that happened real time on camera. The, the the same thing happened with the snake that I harvested on mud, sweat, and beards. I was in a case where hey, I need this, and uh, and I can't do anything until we have this. And you know, I said some words to the to the New Mexico desert, and I'm walking and I'm harvesting chola cactus buds, and all of a sudden the snake kind of just slithers up toward towards me. And that mm. snake, when I harvested it, it didn't put up a fight. You know, you can hear me talking to it and, and apologizing and saying, you know, telling the snake, I'm sorry, I, do, I really don't want to harvest you because snakes don't really provide that much uh, as far as protein. But we had nothing and we needed something after not eating anything for days. And so I said my apologies to it and, and it just pretty much close to like laid down and let us take, let, let me take it, you know, and mm. so it's, like, I don't know. Like, when I say this stuff, a lot of people are like, no way, that, that, that doesn't happen. But for me, it, it, it does happen. And it happened live on camera. And if you look at, you know, our, the most ancient humans on this earth right now is the sand bushmen down in the Kalahari region of Africa. And you could say that their connection with nature is supernatural, except for it is completely natural. That's the the type of connection that we all can have with nature, you know, like, you know, it's pretty amazing. And uh, myself, I actually, looking at my genealogy, have like 
1.3% African hunter gatherer from that region. And so I'm kind of proud. And, you know, for me, I kind of think looking back, it kind of may explain my love for the hunt. <laughs> have you been to Africa? I have not yet. Oh, man, you need to go. I, you need I, to go. Your, I agree. Your mind would just be absolutely blown. I agree. For certain places, man, just... And you don't need to go to, like, commercial places. You need to find, like, I was actually just in Zimbabwe and Zambia Brilliant. in two places, end of November and December, that are just completely off the beaten track. And sort of to the whole spiritualism component, we were on this place called Mungwa South, which is 6Ks from the Botswana border. It's, it's community-owned land. A guy's come in. He wants to restore the wildlife. There's no wildlife. It's been decimated by poaching. And he asked the community, like, what do you need? And the community's like, we need water for our people, we need water for our cattle, and we need wire for our cattle and for our, for, for our, our crops to mm -hmm. keep the cattle out the crops. And as we were filming it, he took me to a place where there's these huge boulders, and under the boulders are these old art, sand art pieces of sable. You can, it's clear as day that these are sable antelope ah. on these rock pieces. And there's no sable in the area. There hasn't been sable in the area for hundreds of years. But he's going to bring Sable back ah. to the area, you know? Those are the kinds of places you need to go to. Yeah. Because it's just almost like this intangible, like, something is there. I think, yeah, for me, my connection with nature and hunting is as much spiritual as it is about, you know, a food sovereignty, you know, and, and collecting uh, or, and, and, you know, feeding myself. Um, yeah, some of us, like, I tell people, like, um, I, I may or may not, I, I, I'm of the belief that I've never harvested an animal that I was not supposed to harvest, that nature didn't intend, it was provided for me, of all the places that that animal could have been to put itself in a position that I was able to harvest it. And so, for me, like, I go out, and if I'm intended to harvest, then I do, and I do, and, and I'm grateful, and I'm thankful for it. If I don't, I know that there's something. I went to the place that I went because for a reason. That there's something for me to see. There's something deeper in this journey, and uh, and rarely do not I not find something or come back with something. And a lot of times you don't realize it right away, but then in retrospect, you know, a week, a month, a year, a decade later, you think about that incident that happened, and mm -hmm. it proves to be profound on your path. Mm -hmm. Right. One of the most. Uh you're probably not as like tied and connectedly to the the hunting world as I am, but one of a very uh, there's a, a there's a contentious topic in our world, and you've said the word probably five or six times, and I want to see what you think about. I want to get your opinion on it. You've said that you harvest animals, that you don't kill animals. You have. Um, I have my opinion. I don't want to sway your opinion on on the matter. Is there a reason why you say harvest versus kill? For me, um, and there are some people that kill animals. For me, it is a harvest. It is, it is about food sovereignty. It's about eating, providing and obtaining food that is in its natural form, that has a higher nutrient content than the food that's in the store. You know, I, when I'm eating wild, wild harvested foods, I probably eat about a quarter of what I would eat when if I'm eating store-bought foods because it, that, there's a greater nutrient uh, uh, content in that food. So for me, it, it is harvesting just as I would harvest from my garden 
where I would harvest from um, the the wild in foraging. It's just a different form of harvesting, you know. I'm I'm a hunter for food, and I like I there's nothing that I've hunted that I don't eat, um, you know. Eat at least some of, or or I put good good use to it, you know. And I'm looking at like cougar, for instance. I harvest cougar because cougar is the best tasting of the Pacific Northwest game animals. I have yet to have cougar, and I keep hearing it is freaking ridiculous. Yes, if you if you've had like a small farm raised pork, like uh, raised on a good organic diet, add a little bit of sweetness to it, uh, and there you have is cougars. For for people that aren't fond of wild meats, it's probably the most palatable of the wild meats that I've tasted. Uh, it works great and stews and dishes you know but any i use it any way i would use pork but from my perspective looking at that you know cougars in this region are overpopulated uh it's having it's wreaking havoc on the undulate population and they're one of the best tasting things in the forest so when i'm looking at what i'm harvesting and what i'm hunting i take those things into account and i go to to the areas like uh in oregon i'll go down to oregon and i look at the regulations and i looked at where the highest number of tags are, presuming, presuming that that is the highest cougar population, and I go there and I try to to hunt in areas that 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 harvest is actually going to be meaningful. Same mm-hmm. here around my house. I don't have a lot of elk here, so I don't hunt elk around my house. Um, and also dealing with um, you know, with this area has a lot of rural. People that are living here, small farms, homesteads, or just people that just wanted to live out away from the city. And when you get, you know, more than 10 or 20 miles away from a major city, dealing with uh, depredation is going to be an issue. And um, so, you know, to some degree, I think like the cougars that are out in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness area living their happy cougar lives, go do it. You know, I actually try to do my best to to hunt animals in areas where they're problematic. So mm-hmm. it serves the public interest as well as feeds me. And uh, and yeah, you know, that's 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 my thought on it. I don't I, I don't think that I mean the overall cougar population or the predator population, you know, does have an effect, but they they are also just as important as our undulants in keeping the the, the ecosystem balanced. And so mm-hmm. while while I hunt, when, the- when you go, when you go hunting, are you? I know obviously you are very tied in with the survivalist movement and building your own fires and building your own implements and whatnot. But you use a rifle, like I heard you say earlier. You're like you've got a rifle. You will use a rifle, right? For most of my life. I was a dedicated archer. I had actually vowed at one point not to pick up a rifle to hunt with until I was too vowed old. at one time. I, <laughs> until I was too old to to pull a bow back. And what changed Come was on, actually, you're not that old, Ray. Come on. That I, I, I what changed was actually my time on alone. And when I came back, and then I uh, soon after getting back, within a year, I moved out into the middle of nowhere. I mean, I've got I'm on forty forty acre property, surrounded by nobody, and my nearest neighbor is a mile away. And and looking at food sovereignty, looking at you know, that was like through the COVID pandemic, it showed the the fragility of our supply chain. It it became more important 
to me than to keep that vow. It was more important to me to have meat in the freezer. And so, and, and the ability to quickly and effectively harvest an animal. And so that's what I made the switch. Well, that makes sense, right? If Again, if you, you're looking to fill the freezer, you want to be as efficient as possible, both in hunting and in the take of that animal. So, so it makes complete sense. Yep. The, the spirituality side of things for you, Ray, is there, is there something, can you couch that? Um, I know you've talked, you know, is it, is it in the in the Christian faith? Is it is it a higher power? Is it God? Is it? Because clearly that is a huge component yeah. of to what you are doing out there, right? Yeah, for me, um, I'm more of an omniist. I believe that that most of the cultures and theologies and religious traditions they define things in the way that the people of those regions understood. There's nothing wrong about that the way that the christian uh, will perceive um nature or the world as compared to a native american or um you know someone from africa you know we all have these different experiences when i think for myself or my belief and what i hold on to is that everybody is talking about and accessing the same source energy uh whether you call it Jesus, God, whether you call it Allah, whether you call it the great teacher or the great spirit, we're, we're all accessing the same source energy and we're just relating to it in the way that our ancestors or, or our traditions, our, our upbringing showed us to. So I, I think that there is, there is um, a gems of truth. There, there is, there's truth in all the traditions. I, on, I honor and respect them all. A lot of my beliefs are derived from my Christian upbringing, but I don't think, for me, that that's the whole story. When you look at all the other traditions and all the other things that are brought into it, uh, what I do believe is that our first charge from a Christian perspective was to be the caretakers of the earth. And to do that, we had to have a, a sublimely deep connection and understanding of the earth the ecosystem, and um, the animals within it. And so, um, you know, it's, it's something to be said when you, when you think about from, the, from a biblical point of view, man was placed in this magnificent garden, and the most sacred item in that garden was a tree. Yeah. And then you think about the importance of our ecosystem and our environment and everything else, and if Biblically speaking, the most important item and most powerful item in the world at that time was a tree. That puts everything else in pers into perspective and the importance of our connection with the natural world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, it's certainly, uh, you know, it's definitely a, a unique way to look at it. Um, I mean, and, I mean, uh, yeah, 100%. You know, people, I, I don't expect everybody to agree with my perspective, and that's fine. This is my path. Uh, I will honor everybody else's path, and uh, but I've found a lot of blessings and love and light and uh, and growth on this path. So talk about to sort of uh, the I want to I want to learn a little bit more about the path. So right now you've done all these you you, you hunted when you were nineteen. 
when did you start getting into this idea of like, I think I should be in the survival world in this like teaching people, going on these TV shows. It's not a general, it's not a very, you know, hey, that's a, a, a career path that people in the high school go, yes, that's what I want to do. <laughs> well, and it never was something I said, that's what I want to do. Like for me, it was a necessity. You know, I, I, I was a, I was the number one rated high school track and field athlete in the United States. When I graduated high school, I had full ride scholarships. I was on three U.S. national track and field teams. Uh, I was a, I was a, on the U.S. decathlon team. I was a decathlete at the University of Oregon. So as a hunter and a person that loved hunting, it was nothing for me to dry, dive down into deep canyons or hike, top, hike to the top of steep hills if I thought that's where animals were at. And I remember the last time that I really hunted with a party on, a reg on my regular party, I convinced them finally to dive down to the bottom of this huge canyon. And we got to the bottom of the canyon, and I looked around and I said, the winds are not right. As it's, it's pointless for this, us to be down here, and so we got to climb back up. And after that, nobody wanted to hunt <laughs> with me, and so I, I ended up hunting a lot on my own. And I figured, you know, if I lose my pack, or if I, if I, I wanted to be able to, to, to survive in a situation where I got myself into, into some trouble by myself deep in the woods, and, you know, I would be, sometimes I'll be by myself, like, one of my favorite places on this earth is the Trinity Alp Wilderness in Northern California. There's no roads into it. I would go five to ten miles deep by myself in the heart of what we'll call bear country, where you, I, I've never gone there and not seen a bear, and you can't walk 100 yards in any direction without finding a bear pile. Like, there are so mm -hmm. many bears up there, and I'm in there by myself. Um, and so, and I, I never really... Have been. I tend to go prepared, so I've never been in a situation where I had a crazy emergency that I needed to use those skills, but I needed to have them so that uh, so that uh, if I were to get in that situation, that I could that I could um, that I could survive it. And uh, and so just doing that and being me and post, I kind of just posted my life on social media. This is what I'm doing. I wasn't for any particular reason. This is just me living my life, my best life, and and actually, I never applied for any of the shows. Um, the, the the casting people from Alone found me through my Facebook posts and asked me if I was interested. And I hadn't even seen the show at that point. And I I watched the show and I was like, yeah, this is like a dream come true. And I can tell <laughs> you that at one point, you know, um, before then, I had uh, kind of taken a break from society as much as I could. I still had to work, and so I had to come in, but I bought a little travel trailer, and I moved my, that travel trailer about 10 miles deep in the National Forest. I would commute in daily for work, but I kind of was... And I, what not, work were you doing at the time, right? I was a uh, big rig collision estimator for a company uh, named Pacific Service Center in Portland, Oregon. And, okay. uh, and so I, I took my trailer... You know, it, was, it took me about an hour and a half to get in every day because I was 10 miles out in the National Forest in Estacada. Um, and um, that time was really about finding my peace. Uh, and w when I'd find my peace, I finally kind of came out of the forest. But, but um, why did you have to go there, right? You know, I was just kind of, 
I was in, I was in a lot of in the place that a lot of people are nowadays. They're they're kind of frustrated, not knowing their direction, kind of feeling victimized by the world. And you know, I'm I'm a believer that if you can't change things, you you, you change and you affect change where you can, but you have to change your perspective on some of those other things. And as you change your perspective on some of those things, it changes your experience. You know, and that way we're. We're the masters of our own journey. Now, imagine the experience that you have when you're walking down the street after your dog died compared mm-hmm. to walking down the street right after your wife, that same street at the same time of day, right after your, your, your girlfriend agreed to marry you. You know, mm-hmm. those two experiences with everything else going on exactly the same are going to be very different. Uh, just because of the state of the mind you're in, you know, we don't see things how they are necessarily. We see things how we are. And so and even, but how old are you at this, at this point, right? Uh, it was 2016. So when's that, uh, I don't know. I was in my early forties at that point. And I just, okay. something had to change. And now my, 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 my default is to go to nature. So I would go to go to work, and then I would head out to nature. I spent a lot of time out there by by myself, just walking and trying to find, you know, the answers. Trying to find peace with myself. Trying to find my place. So I've always felt that, you know, when I step into the forest, I'm at a, I'm back into the natural order. I'm at a disadvantage as a predator. I'm at a disadvantage of a prey, and I just felt that was that niche where where we belonged. Uh, in connection with with nature, and so I went back to that, and definitely had some profound experiences out there that led me to finding my peace. And when I did that, I started attracting uh, these opportunities. And so the folks from alone found me, and I did that, and I thought that was going to be it. Really, I didn't expect much more. Usually, a lot doesn't necessarily come from those type of uh, ex- that type of exposure. You know, most of the people that have been on the show, as awesome as they are, they've seen boost to their own businesses a little bit, but it kind of fades. It really doesn't necessarily turn mm-hmm. into a whole lot. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm kind of humbled and honored and perplexed to <laughs> about why anybody is continuing to want to see me in front of them. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, for some reason, I, I, I guess that, you know, I, I was always perplexed, like, why my personal spiritual journey turned into something that was public. And the only thing... The well, only I, think thing it's, I think it's just that you're unique, man. Yeah. Look at you. You're, you're unique. <laughs> you're, as you said, you're a half feral, half negro, um, <laughs> hunter with dreadlocks. <laughs> uh, nobody can see you. I can see you. Um, that has this huge goatee that's speckled salt and pepper, and um, you've got an intellect about you, you've got a spirituality about you, you've got your articulate in how you speak. Uh, I can see why they keep coming back. <laughs> well, I'm humbled and honored, like I said. I, whatever reason that it, it, it came to me, I, I'm a believer that nothing happens for no reason. And so I, I speculate that somebody somewhere at some point needs to see something that I say. And, uh, and uh, I'm, this is not necessarily this 
exposure is not necessarily about me. It's hopefully mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's an avenue to help other people find their peace, whatever that is on their path, whether it be through their, their connection with nature, which I believe is huge for help understanding your place in this world and finding your peace or it be some other means. But, uh, you know, it's my pleasure, my honor, and I'm humbled to be able to, to, to share my life with people in the hopes that it makes their life a little better. Right. Fill, fill in a little bit. Cause I, I'm, I'm again, still super curious. Yeah. Did you, you were at Oregon, was it university of Oregon yes, as sir. for athletics mm -hmm. completed all the way through university of Oregon? Mm-hmm. And then what? Because that's 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 twenties. You just described this like epiphany. I'm moving out when I'm in my forties. Yeah. Uh -huh. There's a huge chunk of time missing here, Ray. Yeah. Well, after my after that time, I actually became um, a police officer in the city of Eugene, and I I did that for about two and a half years, and uh, I found I I didn't really like the person I was becoming. You know. Okay. Uh, you know, I had a had a, a early marriage when I, you know, I got married early to a, a, a nice woman. You know, there's nothing; <laughs> she has no faults. Um, it was just one of those we were early, and I had my life planned out. I need to have my 2.5 kids by by this point, so I need a spouse. I need to get married, and we got married too young for the wrong reasons. And we do have a magnificent son. Like my son, I am so proud of him. Um, but after two and a half years being there, I just, I, I, I was looking at people at their ugliest times. And the thing that affected me most about it was that most of the worst crimes that you're seeing people doing are committed by people that say they love the person that they're committing this horrendous crime about, and, uh, you know, and that dichotomy just kind of stuck with me. I was like, "You, how, who can you trust? And I've always been kind of a people person, and I was getting very jaded on humanity. And so I did that for a little while. For I did that for a couple of years, and, and um, then had a separation with the police department. Um, and I, again, everything happens for a reason. Like I, I saw what I needed to see there on that journey. And, uh, and it still has shaped me. I can still see experience that I have there that shaped my, my life and perception now. And then I uh, had some transitional work managing some bars uh, a little bit, and then I moved into the transportation industry working for Penske Truck Leasing. And I, I was with them for about 10 years um, as a rental manager. Uh, okay. I went into the corporate world with Penske and and had a meteoric rise and to uh to within i don't know three three four years of being with the company i was in charge of most of the rental operations in northern california uh and uh and western um western nevada and then i did that for i was in sacramento for about two two and a half years as well and i kind of got my pers my perspective there like it, it kind of made me start thinking about what is actually important in life what brings you joy and i i was there and i was making more money but my young son was still in oregon so you know i was committed to making my parenting time and so every two weeks i would trip driver or fly up from from california to oregon 
And it was it didn't take long to realize that all the extra money that I'm making uh doing this job that's stressing me out, working you know, seventy, eighty hour weeks, uh, you know, driving. I, I put one hundred and twenty thousand miles on my company car within two years. You know, jeez, like, like it, it made me realize it's not worth it. And I, and all the extra money I'm making, I'm spending going back to see my son, and I'm still missing out on stuff. And so, so um, I made a choice. I took a demotion to get moved to get moved back to Oregon, and. Um, Stayed with the company another couple of years and moved to uh, <laughs> a vendor of of PSE or excuse me uh, Penske Pacific Service Center and I started in their parts department at first and then became a, a collision estimator for semi trucks and uh, I did that up until this then it was I need to go into the then I need to move into the forest. Yeah, and I and I did that until November and I and they were awesome with me. They worked with me and let me take leaves for a loan and called to the wild and mud, sweat and beards. And, you know, when I moved up here, they let me work remotely and I've been working remotely with them until, till uh, the late part of uh, 2022. Um, when I decided, you know, I decided this year was about, about, you know, I, I always said that that company, which was an excellent company to work for, it was the best situation that I can be without doing something that I loved. And so uh-huh. my goal for this year was to start doing something, the stuff that I love, the stuff I was passionate about, and try to find a way to make a living at it. Uh, reality TV isn't the most profitable <laughs> industry, and so it, it, it does help. It's interesting, but, you know, I've kind of embarked upon some other, other missions, and uh, so I decided to become a hunting guide uh, for uh, upfront outfitters, and I, I did in my first fall hunting, guiding hunts with them, and I took that leave, and basically that was the separate. I took the separation with Pacific Service Center with the blessing and love of the owner of the company to follow my dreams, um, and to to start guiding hunts, and then um, still trying to put together what's next. But I've still got I'm, I've got the project that I'm working on, but. Um, I was also just named um, the National First Rights or Forgotten Rights Director for the First Hunt Foundation. And if you're not familiar with them, it's a foundation that was started in Idaho, and they basically are, or they we hold camps and workshops to get people over that hurdle of learning how to hunt. You know, I, I've kind of asked a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last a lot of people. I think they just, didn't they just get a big? Didn't they just get a big donate? Um, a big grant from NRA HLF. Um, I don't. I I know they got a great. But they got a nice one from Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation last year. I know they're they're in the process of securing funding for this year. Um, and but I I don't know that if they. I don't. I'm not aware of anything. I thought I saw just, something like 130 or 140 thousand grant dollar grant or something. It was very good. It was. It was. I'd heard about them, and then who runs that organization again? Uh, Rick Brazel is the founder and president. <laughs> who do you think I have on the podcast tomorrow, Ray? Oh, you have Rick. <laughs> Rick Brazel tomorrow. Oh, nice. Rick is. Um, he's just a, a great guy. I get, you 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 you'll appreciate his energy as well. But he just yeah. named me as the uh, we've kind of been working the last few weeks together to kind of 
as they're looking for funding uh, to get this pro program started. So we're starting it, and it's kind of forgotten rights, and I, I'm calling it that based on what I said before about you know you know the, all of us come from a hunting tradition. It's all part of our heritage. It's something mm. that that we all um, we all are tied to, and it's a big hurdle. Like most people you that don't hunt that may be interested in it. It's like where to go, what equipment, where I like, there's so many questions it becomes overwhelming. So they keep going to Walmart to get their food. <laughs> you know, where whereas if you, you 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 know, and like looking just at the 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 result of the supply chain on the pandemic, you know, like the panic and the frustration there were when you can't find the food in the stores. How much more confident and how much more calm are you going to be if you know that in a pinch when you need to, even if you don't hunt every day, every season, but if you really need to, you have the ability to go feed yourself, your family, and your community. It just kind of puts, puts you at ease a little bit. You don't have to stress as much. And so I'm trying to do my part to bring that to as many people as we can. And you know, we identified that people of color in a lot of areas in the country are underrepresented in the hunting community. And you know, I, I kind of put some feelers about, about why that is, and uh, it, with a lot of them, it's, you know, fear of bigotry in the forest, you know, or it's, we don't, we don't come from a hunting background, like, just like everybody else, right. where do you start with this stuff? And, mm -hmm. and then you don't see a lot of complimentary faces in, in, in the hunting world, and so it's... Uh, you know, I, a lot of people just feel that they don't belong in the forest when the truth of the matter is that's the home for all of us. That's where we all came from, and we do belong there. And so I'm pretty pretty humbled and honored to be to be named as the, the, the director and to be able to bring that experience and those skills to as many people as I can. Well said. Well said. I told you, look, we hadn't spoken a word until we hit record. <laughs> and uh, here we are almost an hour later and uh, absolutely loved it, man. And um, I, it'll be my honor one day to meet you face to face. It would um, be mine as well. And shake your hand. And uh, if there's anything I can do, anything for you, Ray, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. Um, what you don't understand is you're now part of this family that we built in the Blood Origins community, which is a community of showcasing our hearts when it comes to what hunting means to people, what it means for people, wildlife communities all around the world, and really showcasing our heart uh, from a hunting perspective. So thank you. Thank My you for pleasure. coming on. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. I appreciate it very much. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.